Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Pleasing no one, Jay Powell cuts rates but creates confusion over the why and the what next. Carney cuts. The Bank of England slashing its growth forecast but holding rates steady and diving into the data. The London Stock Exchange buying Refinitiv for $27 billion. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Once again, two first move where we're still recovering a little bit, I think, from some Jay Powell-induced mini pandemonium on Wall Street yesterday. If you remember, we argued he'd have a tough job pleasing everyone. Well, it kind of feels like when you look at the market reaction, he was left pleasing no one. There's good news, though. Take a look at futures right now. We have lost a bit of ground over the last 30 minutes or so, but we are relatively unchanged at this stage. Some calm being restored after what was a fairly interesting and turbulent session yesterday. Stocks plunged after the Fed chair, Jay Powell, said that July's rate cut did not signal the start of a more prolonged rate-cutting cycle. So, as you can imagine, investors suddenly assumed he meant this was a, a one-and-done as far as cuts were concerned. Stock then recovered a bit and you can see that later on after Powell tried to rescue the situation but I have to say some key questions remain what does a quote mid-cycle adjustment actually mean from the Federal Reserve at this moment and I feel for him to some degree how do you justify cutting rates without scaring people about the outlook right now and your concerns about the economy Powell clearly didn't want to tip his hand on future policy or fuel expectations for further rate cuts down the line but I have to say the execution that yesterday was quite messy. The result of all this, of course, stocks falling. The US dollar counterintuitively actually strengthened to two-year highs. And the so-called recession signals that we've been talking about coming from the bond market actually worsened too. I think my takeaway was that perhaps we should consider cancelling the press conferences here and just stick to the statement, quite frankly. Let's get to the drivers because Christine Romans joins me now. Christina, I think we should just stick with the data dependent and say nothing more. <laughs> Maybe, but look, what I think is so interesting is that a lot was made of the market's reaction yesterday, down 333 points for the Dow by the end of the day. That's not very much. That's 1.2%. If the market was really banking on something bigger, uh, you know, I think that it wasn't really that much of a negative reaction overall. You could also make the argument if the Fed had come out there strongly with more than 25 basis points or definitively signaled that there would be a, a succession of rate cuts, that could have spooked the markets a lot. What is going on when the, the data looks like it's still relatively 
relatively strong and hanging in there, uh, but you're you're moving into the kind of mode you last saw when we had a huge great recession. So I think it's it's kind of a fascinating moment here. And, and like so many things in the Trump presidency, it's just unprecedented. You know, you've got a president who is saying that that they should have done more, that the markets are disappointed, the markets wanted more. You got a president of the United States who's saying the markets are his barometer here. That's what he's trying to please. I've I've never I've never seen that before. Yeah, I mean, he has got a really challenging job, and we've said this all the way along. And to your point as well, this was the first cut in more than a decade. So calibrating that, trying to say, look, we're not cutting because we see a recession at some point in in the near future, particularly when the bond market signals suggest that is a fine line to walk here at this stage. Do you think some part of the messaging, though, yesterday was a signal to those that perhaps would like to see rates lower and keep piling the pressure on to say, look, we are simply going to do as we see fit based on the the economic data right now. This is about the fundamentals and not about the market or about political pressure, nothing else. What I thought was interesting is that he talked about how solid and strong the economy is. And look, I mean, I'm showing you right there markets since the Trump inauguration. Look at this. I mean, we're cutting interest rates at a time when the S&P 500 is up, uh, you know, 30 percent over the past uh, couple of years. And and GDP growth is still 2.1 percent and the unemployment rate is 3.7 percent. Now, I know some of those indicators are lagging indicators, of course, and you can you, you know, you can't just look at the unemployment rate and not know if a recession is coming. But no one's talking about a recession coming uh, right now. So I think that the president and his rhetoric. I mean, the Fed chief yesterday said that the president and his his demands and threats did not affect what what they do. But I do think it has to be background noise, right? It has. They have to know that there's a very fine line to walk here between, uh, you know, pot- potentially have the president trying to make moves to remove him or demote him and continuing to move along this path of, of what's best for, for the overall economy. What I think is fascinating was just not even a year ago, nine months ago, we were talking about how long it would be till we got to normalize rates right we are so far away from that and we don't have room I mean you've got you've got eight 25 basis point cuts is all of the ammunition the Fed has right now yeah absolutely but they got far more than any other central bank and actually I think my final takeaway is if you didn't have the cut yesterday and everything that he said you'd again be arguing why are they even cutting rates in the first place they're not cutting them to support the US economy they're cutting them in defense of everything else going on which and two members voted against it remember so it was not a unanimous decision yeah, absolutely. Christine Romans, always great to have you on. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Right, let's move across the Atlantic right now because the Fed's counterpart held rates steady, but they did cut their forecast. The Bank of England citing risks, including a no-deal Brexit and the broader global slowdown. Anna Stewart joins me now. There are similarities with the Fed here in that you've got a central banker that arguably disagrees or is not in line with at least what investors think is going on, either domestically or, or more broadly right now, and that's the challenge. That was the most interesting part about the whole press conference, frankly, is the fact that the Bank of England feels so out of step with the market. And actually, Mark Carney, the governor, in the Q&A that followed the opening remarks, seemed to agree with that. Essentially, the market is pricing in here greater chance of a no-deal Brexit. They're also pricing in general economic uncertainty, and they are thinking that there will be a rate cut in the months and months to come. However, the Bank of England still assumes a smooth transition, a smooth Brexit. They still still advise that they expect to gradually raise rates to curb inflation. And even when it comes to the possibility of a no-deal Brexit, even then, it's not as simple as they would cut rates. Listen to what Carney said. No deal would, very unusually for an economic shock, 
be an instantaneous shock, not just to demand, which is what everybody is used to seeing, uh, but a shock to supply. So essentially, rates could go either way there. You can see the buying tees in. Uh, two completely different alternatives if the UK leaves with a deal and without a deal, and then the, all the different variations of it. Uh, also very interesting, I think, what businesses think. I always find this interesting with the inflation report. They survey business leaders. Now, back in April, straight after that first Brexit deadline failed to be uh, met, 40% of businesses thought that Brexit uh, problems, uncertainty, would be resolved by the end of the year. That has now fallen, Julia, to 20%. It has halved. That is a sharp fall in business sentiment. Yeah, and it makes sense. And, and I was about to say, one other uh, disagreement out there between uh, the Bank of England and others is with the UK government, of course. If the Bank of England's suggesting their base case here is still a soft Brexit, the government's going well and truly the opposite way, ramping up spending to prepare for a no deal here. And even talking about an emergency budget just weeks before that October 31st deadline. Talk us through that. Yeah, we, so we got the details of the turbocharged spending plans to prepare for a no-deal Brexit. And essentially, the new Chancellor, Sajid Javid, is doubling down on funding for this year, taking it to $2.5 billion. Overall, Brexit uh, planning has taken us to $7.6 billion over the last few years. Um, this money will be focused on border officials, on stockpiling more medical supplies. Again, we did that, of course, before the last deadline uh, in March, supporting business, a public information campaign. Julia, I expected the opposition Labour Party to slam this as a waste of money, but I thought it was really interesting that the Institute of Fiscal Studies, the head, said it seems particularly perverse to make a whole lot of economic choices just before we know what sort of Brexit we'll have. So lots of disagreement there. Yeah, when we still don't know. <laughs> Stuart, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on and talk deals now because the London Stock Exchange has agreed to buy Bloomberg's biggest rival. The data provider Refinitiv in a $27 billion all-share deal. Paul and Monica joins me now. Paul, you said it on Twitter, watch out Bloomberg. It tells you everything when a company like the London Stock Exchange makes a purchase of some $27 billion and their share price soars rather than falls. Yeah, I think, Julia, that people like this move because it really is all about financial data, which is, of course, Bloomberg's main selling point for a lot of institutional investors. So that is one of the reasons why the LSE is probably up on this. And, you know, this is a win for Thomson Reuters, which recently spun off Refinitiv, and also Blackstone, which has a stake in the company as well. Yeah, and own LSE shares as well. It's a very interesting, a smart move here in particular. What about antitrust issues? Because this feels very important to me. And the signaling as well on this deal suggests that they think they're going to have some uh, fun and games in getting this approved. Yeah, I would imagine that uh, the LSE and Refinitiv may have to sell off some assets to satisfy antitrust regulators in the UK, potentially in the US and elsewhere. But uh, this doesn't sound at first blush as if it's going to be a deal breaker. I think that they will find the right assets to potentially trim to get the deal done. And, uh, you know, it's going to create another financial data powerhouse. Everyone talking about Bloomberg, and I think rightfully so. You've got Bloomberg and the LSE really going toe-to-toe -to -toe in financial data now if this deal goes through. I mean, Bloomberg have such a monopoly in this space with the terminal. Reuters and Icon never really compared in terms of product. Are they 
they really capable of making something that is a viable alternative to Bloomberg here? What's your, what's your gut feel on this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it does remain to be seen, Julia, if the combined entity with the financial muscle now of the LSE can rival Bloomberg. Uh, you know, full disclosure, uh, we here at CNN Business use the Refinitiv Icon product, not Bloomberg. But uh, I know a lot of people who work at Bloomberg and work on Wall Street that, uh, dare I say, are addicted to those Bloomberg terminals. So it might be difficult to get institutional investors to either sign on to the Refinitiv product in addition to Bloomberg or cut the Bloomberg cord and go for Refinitiv instead. So I think LSE has to invest in the service, make it even better so that they can really go at Bloomberg head to head and be a more formidable challenger. I bet there's lots of banks out there that have got a real vested interest in making this a success because they'd love to pay less for something that maybe not even equivalent. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the headlines that we're tracking from around the world. Former U.S. President, uh, Vice President Joe Biden had a target on his back during CNN's Democratic presidential debate Wednesday in Detroit. took attacks from just about every other candidate on stage with bruising hits on his record and health care plan. But unlike the last debate, Biden was ready. I have guts enough to say his plan doesn't make sense. And to be very blunt and to be very straightforward. You can't beat President Trump with double talk on this plan. This idea is a bunch of malarkey, what we're talking about here. Right now, Biden has a strong lead in the polls, but we'll soon see if his debate performance helps or hurts those numbers. The U.S. official has told CNN they believe Osama bin Laden's son, Hamza bin Laden, is dead. That source says the U.S. had a role in his death, but did not provide details. Earlier this year, the U.S. State Department called Hamza bin Laden an emerging leader in the terror group Al-Qaeda and offered a million-dollar reward for information leading to his capture. Iran's president says Washington has resorted to, quote, childish actions on Wednesday. The U.S. followed through on weeks old threat, imposing new sanctions on Iran's foreign minister, Javad Zarif. President Hassan Rouhani said the U.S. government is afraid of Zarif's interviews, apparently referring to a string of TV appearances he made in New York recently because he says they're afraid of his, quote, logic and his art of negotiations. All right, we're going to take a quick break on First Move, but coming up, bad news for bullion, good news for Bitcoin. As Powell takes the shine off gold, we'll discuss all the Fed fallout and some alternative assets. And with bank hacks, the new bank heist. Is your bank as secure as your deposits? We'll discuss the cybersecurity risk with the chair of the FDIC. Stay with us, that's all coming up. First move live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange as we count down to what looks like a pretty muted open for stocks. We had a bit of volatility yesterday, as we've mentioned, uh, a 1% drop overall for the U.S. majors on concerns about what the outlook is here for Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve and future rate cuts. It was, in fact, the worst day on Wall Street for some two months. 
Jay Powell yesterday saying that the cut was just a, quote, mid-cycle adjustment and not necessarily the start of a cutting cycle here. He's just leaving himself some optionality, but it wasn't the first time his statements had an impact on the markets in the past year. If you remember back in October, on October 3rd, he said rates were a long way from neutral. He then pivoted to a patient rate stance in January. Then in June, he said the Fed would act as appropriate to help the economy, paving the way for yesterday's cut and a bit of a pullback as we've discussed. Let's get some context here. Alicia Levine is Joy, the chief strategist at BNY Mellon and joins us now. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me back. Fantastic. What do you make of yesterday? So yesterday was an interesting day because 25 basis points was baked into the market. Right. We actually thought that the Fed should have done 50. And the reason we think that is not because the U.S. economy is so bad, but that the reasons that the Fed was concerned that the Fed did this, the overseas slowing, manufacturing slow, slowing globally, and other central banks easing are good enough reasons. And there's a game going on with the market. So right now, the Fed's catching up to the market expectations. We thought it would, be, would have been a good idea if, if the Fed had just said 50, this is why we're doing it, and now we're done. And would that have been more sensible in this? When you look at in context that he gave on the U.S. economy, he said, look, we don't see a recession coming up anytime soon. The economy's in good health. The, the trade tensions have turned now to a simmer. We're not making this big cut because we see trouble here. It's about everywhere else in the world. It's about insurance. That's right. So, look, the, the reasons were global. In a sense, it sounds a little bit like a third mandate because it's very rare for the Fed actually to talk about overseas trouble. And yet they've done it a lot. So it is a third mandate. It is the third mandate. In a sense, our central bank is really trapped by what's going on with other central banks globally. So there's an easing cycle going on, and it's very hard to be the one central bank that has a tighter policy. We see what happens with the dollar. And in the end, in the U.S., the stronger dollar doesn't hit Main Street, but it does hit the corporate sector, and ultimately that will hit the markets. And so the Fed has to be sensitive to that. You know, it's interesting. I mean, the, the argument to make here is, look, they're not trying to please the market. The Fed has to assume that it knows what's going on and has access to more data than the market does right now. But for the market to, to reprice yesterday to suggest that actually the probability of a recession here is now higher as a result of what the Fed did yesterday, um, is a bit counterintuitive. It, it is counterintuitive, and that's why we thought the Fed should have really taken over the conversation. Right. So got ahead of it. Got ahead of this. What happened in January is that the market started leading the conversation, and the Fed very rightly realized that it probably hiked one too many times in, in December. But having followed the market, it's now trapped by that. We would like to see the Fed take back the conversation, lead the conversation, explain why it's cutting, and then be done with it. Because the economy's fine here. You know, it's interesting. He was also asked very bluntly by one journalist, what good will this rate cut do? And he kind of struggled to answer. I think, it, look, it, it really is a great point. 25 basis points in a sea of liquidity in a time of easy money when financial conditions are already so easy here in the U.S. US is not actually going to do a lot to stimulate the economy. What it will do is send a signal globally that the Fed will not be tight while other central banks are easy. And that's really what the message is. It's trying to provide confidence and support, isn't it, ultimately? So to your point, you didn't get the half a percentage point that you were expecting. What do we think about the rest of the year now? Do we think the Fed still comes back and probably cuts again in September? I think that there probably is another 25 basis point cut to come. 
And again, there will be excitement in the market. There'll be overpricing of cuts. But at some point, the Fed needs to say, look, we need to keep ammunition here for when there's a downturn in the U.S. And we don't have a downturn in the U.S. The consumer numbers, as you've seen, have been extraordinary. So we're really, our labor market is strong. The consumer is strong. We're doing fine here. What's the risk that if he'd have cut half a percentage point, he would have frightened everybody? And actually, we could have seen a more negative reaction yesterday because people would have been like, whoa. What does the Fed see that perhaps we don't? Because I, I do feel sorry. I do feel a bit sorry for them here in trying to calibrate that message. I hear what you're saying about feeling sorry. My thought last night was that I, I kind of wish that they weren't doing press conferences at every single meeting. Yep. Because in a funny way, you you overshare. You know, the Fed overshares. And it it's really should not be that way because if the Fed is data dependent, I do not think 50 basis points would have scared people. The market was already pricing in a dovish path for 2019. What we would have liked to see is the Fed take that over, take the conversation over and said to the market, you know, stop pricing in 100 basis point cuts by the end of 2020, which is what's going on. Very quickly, what should investors be doing at this stage? So although the market is up extraordinarily high this year, U.S., Europe, even emerging markets, the truth is when you're in a sea of liquidity and interest rates are low and inflation is so low, you're driven to equities. And so we do not think the market's overpriced, but we do think there are conditions in place for a bubble. So, you know, we don't see stocks as overpriced. We think the fixed income market, on the other hand, every all global flows have come to the U.S. sovereign debt market. So to that extent, the risk is really on the other side of that trade. But we do think the equity market is probably okay here. Yeah, and not overvalued. Alicia, great to get some context here. Thanks, Julia. Trying to uh, understand some of the confusion that was created yesterday. Alicia Levine, uh, Chief Strategist at BNY Mellon. And again, we coordinated on outfits. We love this. It's all meant. <laughs> We're getting down to the market open this morning. Plenty more to come on the show, including some discussion of alternative assets. Let's, um, oh, actually, no. Market open is next. We're going to talk GM, actually, before we go there. GM rallying pre-market up over 3%. Q2 earnings beating expectations despite a massive... Massive 60% income drop in China compared to a year ago. Peter Valdez Tapina joins us now. Peter, I almost forgot you. I apologize. Strong sales in America, in North America, leading the way here. Talk us through these results. Yes. Well, not just strong sales in North America, particularly strong sales of pickup trucks, highly profitable pickup trucks, and SUVs, which are products. Remember, GM dropped a number of car models, turns out wisely from its lineup, and has moved more production towards these pickup trucks and SUVs. Saw this yesterday with Fiat Chrysler earnings as well. These big pickup trucks that Fiat that Fiat Chrysler, Ford, and GM make and sell in the U.S. market are big profit drivers. They sell them in huge numbers, and a lot of customers these days like to option them up with leather seats, uh, big engines, and nice stairs, and things like that, so they're very, very profitable. If we look at the transformation that's going on right now for, for GM, I mean, they've said, look, we have to cut staff. We have to move to the things that customers want right now, and they are pickup. They are SUVs. It kind of argues when you look at these results that everything that they've been criticized for on a high level is the right way to move here. Yeah, I mean, they've taken some heat politically for cutting jobs, certainly in the U.S. Not cutting jobs, I should say, but moving them around. They've shifted workers to plants where they're building more profitable products. They've disrupted some communities like Lordstown, Ohio, by shutting down factories there. But uh, it turns out, guess what? That was a smart move. Saved money and shifted production towards where the customers want it. 
And Peter, what do we think on China here? We know it's troubled. We know that there's significant challenges, but the company's also said, look, electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles are the future here, and China's the biggest opportunity in that vein. What do we think of what's going on there? Well, obviously, everyone, Jam included, is, is struggling there, but the good thing, as you mentioned, Everyone's saying that electric vehicles are the future. The trouble is making money with them now. China's providing an opportunity for that by incentivizing electric vehicles very heavily. Last year, I think half of all global EV sales were, were in China. So, you know, they're providing a, a help for the industry in that sense, even though things are down, because companies like GM do need to prepare for that electric future. And, GM, and China, rather, is moving there more quickly than others. Yeah, want to look at the next one, two, and then five years for where the demand's going to be. Peter valdez Sapina, thank you so much for bringing us up to speed on those earnings. And right, now we're heading to the market open. Plenty more to come on the show, including a look at some alternative assets at a time of low yields and more and more money. What about Bitcoin? What about gold? That's coming up. Stay with First Move. We are well and truly back in data dependency mode. And we get an important reading on U.S. factory activity one and a half hours from now. And tomorrow, of course, that all-important non-farm payrolls number two. So we'll be bringing you that tomorrow. But for now, what about some alternative assets right now? Gold continuing to slip after yesterday's rate cut by the Fed. It's currently down some 1.6%. Gold prices, though, did hit a six-year high in July. And the World Gold Council says demand is also at a three-year high, with central banks adding to their gold reserves. Les Mayle is CEO of Dubai Gold and Commodities Exchange, and he joins us now. Les, fantastic to have you on the show. I could list a whole host of reasons why we've seen a pickup in demand and the price rallying so far this year in, in particular, whether it's central bank easing, the Federal Reserve, uncertainty out there on the economic outlook, never mind tensions in places around the world, including in the Middle East. What are investors, from your perspective, focusing on most at this moment? Good morning, Julia. I think what investors are looking for is, is a signal in the market. You mentioned there about uncertainty. We're living in um, ongoing levels, embedded levels of uncertainty. Now, typically the market and market participants, they're well used to that. They thrive on uncertainty. But this ongoing nature that we seem to be living in, whether it be the US-China uh, prospect of a trade war, whether it be the UK uh, exit from uh, the EU and the Brexit, exit debate, there never seems to be an end game. And the market is 
for want of a better word, kind of freewheeling whilst it's waiting for a, a signal. And, and yesterday's rate cut, as you've been talking about this morning on your programme, that was well telegraphed in advance. And the, the comments uh, from, from the Fed didn't really give an indication which way or another uh, as to where, where the rates will go. They've left all options open. And why wouldn't they until, as you say, they get the, uh, they get the hard data month after month? So there may well be another cut in uh, September time, let's say. Let's, let's wait and see. But the market are in that free wheel zone. And I think that's why we've seen the level of gold price rise as we have done over the last couple of months as it reverts to its classic kind of safe haven uh, asset class. Yeah, and on many of those things, uh, a clarity or, or some kind of resolution to the issues is not necessarily going to come anytime soon. So you have to therefore assume that the volatility will continue. Who are you seeing buying here and, and in what guise? Because there are many ways to play this, whether it's the physical, whether it's options, whether it's gold futures here. Who's buying and, and what for what purpose? Yeah, and I think we've seen the, the, classic, the classic players, whether it be for the demand on the jewellery side, uh, whether it be the hedgers or the speculators. But what's been more telling just recently has been the role of the central banks, as they've kind of come in and, and bought some of, the, uh, some of the activity that we've seen over the last, uh, the last couple, of, couple of months. We've seen a huge volume rise on the gold futures on the DGCX up 200% year on year. The prices that you're talking about, over $1,400 an ounce now. It cooled off a little bit yesterday, but I think those losses will be recovered before, before the end of uh, the month, let alone the end of the, the week. So that demand is still there. The, the uncertainty pressures are still there. And I, although we won't comment on, on price uh, forecast, I don't see the, uh, the rise in gold price abating anytime soon. No, the momentum you're basically saying has been sort of continually rising this year. And, and there's no, there isn't an end game, you know, whether it's one and done on the Fed rate cut, whether the UK will exit Brexit or won't exit Brexit, who would be a sterling trader at the moment? Therefore, the, the traders are looking to the supply-demand fundamentals on, on regulated exchanges and coming to the, the safety and the surety uh, of, of gold. Um, there's the lack of, of end point, as I say, whether it be uh, an end of March, end of uh, October exit for for the EU, uh, for the UK from the EU, whether the US-China uh, rhetoric will, will, will escalate. So there isn't that level of daylight at the, the end of the tunnel. And in that kind of maelstrom of activity, then the market tends to revert back to an asset class it knows and it trusts, and that's gold. Any normal commodity, we'd be talking about supply and demand. We'd be talking about production in particular. Gold is always very interesting on this front for me too. How correlated is production here with, with price? I think the levels of, of production haven't necessarily uh, changed an awful lot. We've seen the, the regions of, of production change, for sure, from, from South Africa in the 1970s and 80s, from the predominance now of, of, of China and Russia, and Dubai is excellently placed in that crossroads, that hub for trade. But production levels 
would typically, as you say, in, in more fundamental commodity sets, that would drive price rise. But gold is an emotional product here. It's driven by sentiment. It's driven by those geopolitical uncertainties. And so it will react to statements from the Fed or statements from prime ministers or, or presidents, as, as it might be. And those levels of uncertainty, that volatility, I don't see an end to that anytime soon. And, and most market observers aren't either. So production demand, yes, we can have a look at that, but it's really the, the emotional and sentimental nature of, of gold which is driving the price, particularly in the last, the last couple of months. For sure, it's been over $1,000 an ounce for 10 years or so now, but it's been really rising the last two months uh, on the back of a, a price correction, you might argue, in the last 10 months. Yeah, an emotional asset. It's fascinating. Les Mel, fantastic to have you on the show, the CEO of the Dubai Gold and Commodities Exchange. Great to have you with us. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but coming up, banking on Bitcoin amid negative bond yields and central bank easing. Could the cryptocurrency provide the kind of returns investors are looking for and be a viable alternative? Stay with us. We'll discuss. first move where we've entered a topsy-turvy investment world we've been there for a while where negative interest rates are increasingly the norm some 43 percent of global bonds outside the u.s now sport negative yields amid growing concern for slowing global growth and stimulus of course take a look at this german sovereign bonds have been trading in negative territory for some time now dutch yields went negative for the first time since 2017 last month danish and Swiss bond yields are negative now across the whole yield curve. Also, more than 40% of European investment-grade corporate debt have negative yields. That's some $1.5 trillion worth of debt. You get it. The big question is, where do investors go when you're looking to try and make some returns here? Many are alternative, looking at alternatives like Bitcoin. Anthony Popolano is the co-founder and partner at Morgan Creek Digital Assets, and he joins us now. Great to have you with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you with us, too. Now, you say the easy money, not just here in the United States, but we did see the Fed cutting rates, is the rocket fuel that will fuel the rise of, of Bitcoin. Yep. Explain what you mean. So, look, whenever we get to uh, recessive periods or kind of slowing growth, central banks have two tools, right? They can cut interest rates, which uh, they just did yesterday, um, and they can print money, quantitative easing. And so when they do both of those things, uh, it usually takes anywhere between six to 18 months to actually feel the effect of those tools. Um, and what it's going to do is it's going to coincide with uh, the Bitcoin halving, which we can get into what that is. Um, and so we think that uh, cutting rates, printing more money, uh, and then this uh, systematic uh, structure of Bitcoin is going to lead to a higher prices for Bitcoin over a long period of time. Okay, so there's plenty of money already sloshing around in the, in the global economy. But to your point, as central banks, including the Federal Reserve Ease, there's going to be more and more money in the system. Yep. So explain the other piece of the jigsaw part. What does that mean? Yeah. So Bitcoin is a uh, it's a fixed supply asset. There's 21 million of them. And if you think about it, uh, the code was created and there's 21 million uh, Bitcoin that are going to be distributed over time. And it's distributed to people who run the software. Um, and so uh, an easy way to think about it is every 10 minutes, 50 Bitcoin were given out in the beginning to people who are running the software, the right. miners. Yeah. Uh, every, that went on for four years. And then after four years, that reward got cut in half. So it went from 50 to 25. Four years later, got cut in half again to 
12 and a half. Um, and in May 2020, it'll get cut in half again, 6.25. So what you're saying is the rewards for, for mining Bitcoin yep. are reducing. Why was that decision made? Yeah, so, so when you have a de- deflationary asset, right, it has a disinflationary monetary schedule, meaning that there's some inflation in the beginning, but it gets lower and lower over time. It's very similar to like the stock to flow ratio of gold, right? So there's existing supply and you go ahead and you're just continuing to add to it. The difference is between Bitcoin and gold. With Bitcoin, we know exactly how many is getting created. Yes. So 1,800 Bitcoin are going to get created today. Now, and the second thing is we know the total supply available. There's 21 million. So, so it's not, hey, I wonder how much is in the ground. We know exactly what it is and we can actually go in and audit or verify the software code uh, of the system. So how do you go from reducing the rewards that accrues to the miners for, for harvesting Bitcoin yep. here and effectively restricting the supply out there, which is key. So on the one hand, you've got cash in the system, the ordinary, the fiat currency system, increasing at the same time as you've got effective supply of Bitcoin reducing. You're arguing here that that will mean the price rises. Look at gold, right? So since we got off the gold standard in the United States, gold's gone up about 40x, right? So there's the argument that gold actually appreciated in value. The other argument is that actually the dollar has depreciated against gold, right? So there's a debasing of the currency that happens. And so as we cut interest rates and print more money, we're debasing our currency. Um, And so when we do that, fixed supply assets um, or or low uh, uh, scarce assets like Bitcoin uh, should continue to appreciate in value as long as demand increases and the dollar devalues against it. Okay, but your price target is $100,000 over two, two and a half years. That's a long way up. Yeah, well, look, in, in 2017, Bitcoin went up 20x, right? So it's a hyper volatile asset. We've seen it go up um, 20, 30, 50x at times. We've also seen it draw down over 80% uh, now three times. And um, in August, we said, look, it was trading around $7,500, $7,000, going to drop to 3K. Ended up doing that uh, right around December of uh, last year. Uh, and then it was going to recover back to $10,000. And it did that. And so we think now from about $10,000 where it sits today, um, it's a pretty conservative estimate to see it hit $100,000 in the next two and a half. Okay, so you've also talked about countries adopting Bitcoin. What do you mean by that? Do you mean the idea that they perhaps have to replace their own currency or run something like a Bitcoin or a crypto alongside it or simply just accept that this is something that's coming and you can't fight it? Yeah, so no one controls Bitcoin, right, in the sense that a country can't print more, they can't uh, manipulate it, they can't do anything. And so the way that you interact with Bitcoin is whether you regulate it uh, out of your country (laughs) or you incentivize people to come there. And so there's some countries like India who are proposing bans on cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, etc. But at the same time, they're thinking about launching their own digital currency, so kind of digitizing their fiat currency. I think that the first countries to go ahead and actually use regulation as an incentive to encourage entrepreneurs, encourage the innovation, encourage the disruptive technology into their borders and to actually um, try not to stifle the innovation, they're going to be better off over a long period of time. And so I think it's really, really important, the regulatory conversation going on in the U.S. right now. Why? Why are they going to be beneficiaries? Why is it important to foster this technology? Because a lot of the feedback that we got on social media was just explain what the benefits are and that this is a a viable currency. For sure. So look, uh, business has been built on a dual accounting system for uh, pretty much the entire life of you and I. And so what that means is there's a debit credit system between two people, but that system is governed by centralized third parties. So it's banks, it's other organizations. They say, hey, $100 left my account and went to your account. We trust that they're doing the right thing. Um, What we're seeing now is the invention of a triple entry accounting system, right, which is a blockchain. It is simply you and I have debits and credits 
dual entry. And that third ledger is no longer controlled by a centralized authority. It's controlled by the network. You and I get to actually look at it. Very similar to the game of Monopoly, right? When all of us are sitting at the table and I can see into my bank account and all of your bank accounts, I trust that you're doing the right thing because I actually have transparency into it. That's important because it's not just about money, right? The blockchain actually is anything that has transactions between two parties has the opportunity to be disrupted by a triple entry accounting system. So do you see Facebook's announcement of Libra as a positive thing for you? Because this could ultimately be 2 billion users using some form of cryptocurrency. Or do you see it perhaps as a risk that it's a Facebook controlled cryptocurrency and that has its own problems? Is it good for you? And your discussion right now, or is it bad? So I think there's two components to this. One is uh, Facebook entering the space is a huge benefit just in the validation, right? In, in the sense of Facebook's a multi-hundred billion dollar company, right? Uh, a friend of mine said, look, there's some people who might not like Mark Zuckerberg, but nobody thinks he's dumb, right? <laughs> so so when, when they put their time, resources, energy um, into doing this, obviously it's important. Um, the second component is um, it's something that I call the crypto density theory, right? Which is essentially uh, similar to um, an intersection with restaurants on it. When there's one restaurant, uh, they get whatever traffic they get. When a restaurant moves in across the street, rather than competing, actually what you see is the foot traffic to that intersection increases. At a third, a fourth, a fifth restaurant, all of a sudden the foot traffic to everybody rises. Same thing with cryptocurrencies. When you have just one alternative to a fiat currency, it's interesting. When you add two, three, five, ten of them, then what happens is people actually have multiple options there. I still believe that Bitcoin will end up being the dominant player in that uh, alternative currency space. Um, but I think that the more players that are at the table, especially coming from large, well respected organizations. Um, it just legitimizes the space. People get in and it's the gateway drug to ultimately Bitcoin. There's rumors that Iran's going to rename its currency Lop of Uzeris off. Yeah. Do you think, and how long does it take, do you think, for a country to go, you know what, actually we are going to adopt this? Yep. Or does it matter if that never happens? Yeah, so Iran actually just made a bunch of changes to some regulation to legalize the mining process. So again, going back to who runs the software, um, it's really important because now all the economic sanctions, right? The U.S. dollars, the global reserve currency, the U.S. levies these uh, sanctions on countries like Iran. But now what they can do is actually they can turn on computers and they can run software and they can get an economic benefit from it. They're, they're no longer dependent for that revenue stream uh, on the economic system or the global economic uh, system. And so I think that we just have to understand that there are aspects of the world that are changing. That's OK. It's not a bad thing. Um, but rather than fight it and say, you know, hey, let's bet on it not occurring. I think that we should get ahead of it, say this is most likely to happen. Let's figure out how can we incentivize it, be at, a for, at the forefront, be a leader, and benefit it from ourselves. Most of the fear is about lack of understanding. We just need to understand more. Absolutely. Anthony, great to have you on. Thank you so much, Anthony Poblano there. All right, we'll continue this discussion, no doubt. But up next, from heists to hacks, bank robbers may be moving with the times, but are bank regulators? We talked to the head of the FDIC about the risks from cyber criminals. Very well connected to the discussion we just had, too. Stay with us. That's after this. To first move, robbing a bank used to involve guns, hostages, and bags of cash. These days, it's more about computer codes, loopholes, and data. The U.S. bank Capital One announced this week that a hack attack had compromised the details of more than 100 million customers. So, how are banks and their regulators handling the cybersecurity threat? Well, Matt Egan put that question to the head of the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC. Listen in. 
protecting the banks and protecting consumer data is prohibitively expensive. If you take a look, some of the banks have um, spent uh, billions of dollars in, in IT space, and most of that goes to cybersecurity and anti-money laundering efforts. And not a lot of banks have that much money to invest. So it's something that we are monitoring, making sure that the risk profile of the bank is measured to how much money they're spending and how good their defenses are. The FTC recently fined Facebook $5 billion. Would you be in favor of finding an FDIC-regulated bank that suffers a major breach if you find that the cyber defenses were weak? So frankly, we would have to take a look. The way we would approach this is we would take a look at their cybersecurity and uh, the structure during the exam. If we find deficiencies in the exam, we will note, uh, note that to the bank. Uh, we issue anything from the matters requesting, requiring board uh, attention to matters requiring attention. We would give them a list of those issues to fix, and then we would monitor progress to make sure that they have fixed them between uh, that exam and the next exam. And we may do like a spontaneous exam in the meantime just to make sure we understand uh, how they're doing doing on, on progress. But if a bank did not fix those deficiencies that you found, and then suffered a breach, would you be in favor of the FDIC so we would, we fining? Would, we could certainly have an enforcement action against that bank. Including a fine? Including a fine, yes. And and their management rating and their uh, CAMELS ratings would go down because they're not uh, continually uh, uh, working on, on complying with our requests. Uh, and it's something we take very seriously. Is cyber the biggest risk facing banks right now? Depends on what banks you're looking at. For the large banks and the, and the banking ecosystem as a whole, yes, I would say that's the largest risk. Matt Egan joins us now. Great interview, Matt. The industry spends on average $2,300 per person in order to try and tackle this. It's just not enough, clearly. That's right, Julia. I mean, consider this a warning. Regulators are clearly cracking down on banks with weak cybersecurity. And, and as they should, right? I mean, banks hold vast amounts of our sensitive information and hackers are constantly trying to break in. Now, clearly that Capital One hack that we just recently learned about that impacted 100 million people was a real wake-up call. Now, the FDIC chairman, she said, listen, um, banks need to constantly update their firewalls and their protections and she said that hackers are not going to change what they're doing, so banks need to really be ready for all of these attacks. Now, Julia, bigger picture, I did ask about the overall health of the banking system, and, and she was very, very positive. She said that really this is the best of times right now, but she warned we should not expect this to continue forever. Um, you know, things will happen along the way. One area in particular that I asked her about was the leverage lending boom. Um, FDIC, the former chairman, uh, Sheila Bear of the FDIC, she recently warned that a, uh, a bust in the leverage lending space, that it, it could actually hit the economy faster than the subprime crisis did a decade ago. And so I asked the current chair about this, and she said, yes, the FDIC is concerned about this. And she said that if there is a recession, if there's a downturn, we're going to have a number of problems on our hands, and this will be one of them. Yeah, well, the good news is at least we're talking about it this time around, so the hope is that we can catch it early enough. Matt Egan, great job. Thank you so much for that interview, and thanks for joining us on the show. Right, that just about wraps it up. I'm Julia Chastley. You can listen to our podcast, cnn.com slash podcast. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country.
Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.